Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Beth Burke and Chris Sands. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Beth Burke with the Canadian American Business Council, joined by my fantastic, exceptional co-host, Professor Christopher Sands from the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hi, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Beth. I, I feel showered by adjectives. Hopefully they fit. Otherwise, I guess they'll just wash off me like a water off a duck's back. Hey, I feel like maybe each time I'm going to add another one. So by, you know, in a month or two, it's going to be like seven adjectives before we get to your name. What do we think about oh, this? Yeah, like, the, like there was the old woman who swallowed a fly. It gets longer and longer as you go. <laughs> yes, I love that. Uh, uh, I don't know why he swallowed a fly. Oh, well. <laughs> of adjectives, I'm really excited because we have a fantastic guest joining us today. I'm going to turn it over to you to let our listeners know who we get to chat with. Absolutely. Well, we are joined today by Deanna Horton, Distinguished Fellow at the Monk School of Global Public Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Um, Deanna is a Distinguished Fellow of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, a Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and I'm very proud to say a Global Fellow of the Woodrow Wilson Center also. Uh, previously, a career Foreign Service Officer, she was appointed as Ambassador of Canada to the Socialist Republic of Vietnam in 2008. In September 2010, she returned to the Canadian Embassy in Washington. It was her second tour, this time as Minister of Congressional Public and Intergovernmental Affairs. Her overseas assignments uh, are all over the place, from Hamburg to Tokyo to Washington, D.C. And most importantly, she was a negotiator, uh, one of the Team Canada negotiators for the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is coming up on its 30th anniversary. So we are delighted to have her and uh, and her global perspective. Deanna, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Saying the 30th anniversary, every time I talk to students at Monk about NAFTA, I realized that was I was working on this before they were born. It, it is a yeah, it is a problem. We, we we don't seem to age, but then when you walk into a classroom, they're always the same age, young, 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 and you just it's like being caught in a time loop. Yeah, and Beth, I don't know how you feel about this, but you know, I'd like to be a madam rather than a fellow, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it has a different connotation, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I feel like we have been sort of talking about Asia and, you know, the Pacific region for a little bit here on Genusa Street, and I'm so excited to get your thoughts and perspectives. I think I'm going to kick off with, like, a question about what your first thought that our listeners should have when they think of the region. Like, what should they be thinking of or mindful of as, as they enter this conversation with us today? Asia is the future. Asia is the future for both Canada and the U.S. in terms of the economy, uh, but working with Asian partners is going to be very important in order to ensure economic progress in North America. Um, Deanna, in that regard, and I don't disagree with you at all, um, it's been a bit rough lately. Um, Canada's relationship with China, which had high high hopes, particularly in 2015, when the Prime Minister, who visited as part of his father's opening relations with China, uh, and when he was just a little kid, um, that seemed to be, uh, you know, sort of foreshortened by Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels. Then we had India. 
And, you know, yes, the trade talks were going slowly, but uh, then all of a sudden we had uh, an assassination of a Canadian citizen, Hardy Singh Nijar, um, uh, a situation we're still trying to resolve. And there are numerous other uh, elements to this, you know, the sibling rivalry going back to the British Empire days with the Australians. How, how do you see Canada positioned in the region vis-a-vis maybe the United States? Are we natural partners? Are we competitors? Um, or are we something else as we try to deal with this region, which, as you so aptly say, is the future? Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you were just talking about. But let's start with um, the relationship with the two economic powers in Asia, China and India. And yes, things aren't going that well on the face of it. But when you look at trade and investment ties, there's there's been very little impact. India, I would say, uh, India has always not lived up to its potential in terms of uh, Canada's relationship with India. And it's not unusual for uh, people to be disappointed in what is actually happening. We have, a, we have a huge advantage in terms of the Indian diaspora. So there's a lot going on beyond the, below the surface, I would say. But generally, I think that India does not offer immediate prospects, uh, although in the long term, it no doubt will. I think where the real potential for Canada is, is are two areas. One is the North Pacific, Japan and Korea and the other is Southeast Asia. So in terms of the comparison with the United States, obviously the security partnership underlies everything. The the Japan-US security partnership, the Japan-Korea security partnership is really critical. And of course, ASEAN is very interested in having the US as a hedge against China. China is the largest trading partner for all of these countries in in Asia. So that is going to continue. China still has a chokehold on a lot of different manufacturing products. So I think that will continue. So in terms of Canada versus U.S., I think Canada still needs to step up. And Canada, I think, is now... a FOMO nation. Canada is constantly in fear of missing out. And I can give you a lot of examples of things that Canada should be doing and is not. Let me follow up uh, on that. You know, I, um, I love that idea of a FOMO nation. Um, but I remember when I was playing sports as a kid, they some sometimes the coach would say, oh, I've got a position for you. I'm going to have you play left out. Uh, and I've, I know from some of the Canadians I've talked to, a feeling there's a feeling that the U.S. is building all these new partnerships and and launching all these new ventures and dialogues and so on in in the Indo Pacific, and yet the invitation for Canada to tag along or to join in has been a little bit uh, lost in the mail. Maybe uh, what's your sense of of whether that is deliberate or or do you think that the U.S. is simply forgetful or overly focused on the Asia side of the equation and not thinking that Canada can bring something to the table? Is it something that Canada could, you know, maybe address with communications? Hey, we have interests, we have potential, we should be there, we can help you. Or or is it something else? What what accounts for this? Well, I think Canada is overlooked 
perhaps not deliberately, but I remember listening to a senior State Department official last year talking about all the things and partnerships in Asia and did not mention Canada once. And I think it's because we don't bring enough to the table. And until we do, it's going to be a continual running behind, knocking on the door, please let us in. I think, though, one of the key issues is, and I'm going to focus on North Pacific here for a moment, when you think about what happened in August between Japan, Korea, and the United States at Camp David, that was a pretty critical meeting. I think those countries represent, for Canada, I'm talking about Japan and Korea here, South Korea, obviously, enormous potential for Canada. Not And people think, oh, well, these are mature markets, but they are very advanced markets. And it's not only what they do in their own countries, but also in the rest of Asia, where they are major investors. And we have to think that Canada should be really, if that's the train that's pulling out of the station, that's the one Canada should be running after. And yet in Canada, there's really little discussion about this. So. I think this is something that uh, Canada should be focused on. And frankly, when you're talking about bringing something to the table, and we have discussed this before, here's where the Arctic comes in. The Arctic is now part of the Indo-Pacific. And when you look at what non, what one consider as non-Arctic nations and what they are coming to the table with in the Arctic Council, and beyond. And when you think about what's going to happen with whatever it's the Northwest Passage or the Polar Silk Road or whatever it is, this is could be an, an inevitability. In any case, Canada needs to pay attention to its own backyard. And I think that um, this is something that Canada needs to do, and if it does, if it does step up, if it does up its game in the Arctic, I think the Americans will be very grateful for this because they are torn in so many different directions now and have limited resources, despite their superpower status, that the U.S., I think, will begin to take Canada a little more seriously, and Canada will be doing something that's in its own self-interest. And I'll just put in a plug, Deanna, you very eloquently put this argument out in a paper that we published at the Wilson Center. So we'll make sure for listeners that that's available on the page for this episode. But I don't want to dominate the conversation. Beth, over to you. I know you were about to jump in. Oh, no. Um, I think that was a wonderful ad and good to have reference points for us. Um, You know, I'm learning something new every time we have these conversations. So it's great. Uh, one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about, and I think it's sort of been percolating um, in the atmosphere coming out of COP, is climate change and what the interconnectivity and role that, um, you know, that region plays in this conversation, especially given how forward-leaning Canada has been in their climate change policies. So, you know, what are your thoughts in, um, in how we can all work together to meet the goals that are unifiedly set. I don't know whether I would describe Canada as forward-leaning on climate change, um, but yeah. there are areas where we are, and uh, and particularly on the green 
revolution or green technologies. And here's where I think Canada and the U.S. could do a lot more to partner together. Um, building green technology infrastructure, for example, would be one area where I think that there's a lot of commonality of interest and also of expertise. So I would definitely go for that as one area of potential collaboration. Um, and I think overall, green technology has a lot to do with transportation, for example, so electric vehicles, things like that, where we have some expertise in Canada and the U.S., and also where we do want to be able to compete with the global leader in EVs, which is um, obviously China. Um, and that, when you look at the entire supply chain that's related to EVs, then we get into the interesting issue of critical minerals. And there's where there's another area where when you look at it, um, it would seem to be a no-brainer that Canada and the U.S. should be collaborating on this. So the other area, I think, where I think Canada could contribute but doesn't really have the mechanism to do so at the moment, but I think Canada should be looking at what can what can Canada do to harness the private sector? And here's where, you know, the CABC would come into this as well, obviously, because when you look at the global players, and I've done a lot of research on Canadian business in Asia, when you look at the global players in the finance sector, for example, pension funds and uh, insurance companies, and some other players that do a lot of work in investment, you take green technologies, anything in that kind of supply chain that is that is related to uh, climate change mitigation, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. But we have to create the kind of frameworks and platforms for companies to work together in Asia and in other places as well partnering with Asian companies, perhaps, where we can really demonstrate that we are committed to uh, improving the state of the world's economic and environmental health. Absolutely. And I have a follow-up question there. So when you look at the business community and the interconnectivity of the businesses that do, you know, that operate on both sides of the border and in Asia, what do you think the biggest challenges are currently? And how can the the business community support each other and collaborate with government to sort of overcome those challenges? Well, as I just said, I think that the business community is obviously only going to be involved in opportunities that offer something for them. It's not that the government can turn around and say, well, this is what you need to do now. Um, the Americans have a trade and what is the trade and economic development agency that uh, helps with things like feasibility studies and things like that. So, um, and they are building the digital infrastructure. Uh, they have projects in, in Asia. Uh, this is the type of thing that Canada needs to do as well. And so I think that is one aspect of it. Uh, I think generally speaking, um, depends on the sector. 
Canadian companies tend to be much more interested in the North American market. But when it comes to some of the, uh, I'm thinking of the digital economy, but also other uh, investment and infrastructure opportunities, we already have a, a significant presence. So it's more a question of how do we build upon that and continue to um, work to improve the opportunities for business in Asia. Tiana, you, t- you, you made a very important point there, which is that the government of Canada isn't in a position to tell business, now you need to do this. But one of the segments of the business community in Canada that gets that gets talked about in that way a lot are Canada's pension funds as very large sources of capital that even now are investing in infrastructure and other projects around the world. Um, but for people outside North America, and actually, frankly, a lot of people in the U.S., they tend to sort of assume that they're like a state-owned enterprise or a you know a piggy bank fund that the government can direct. How do you see the interaction of those big funds and, and even Canadian banks in financing some of, whether it's the green transition or just economic development opportunities for the Indo-Pacific region? What, what's, what's the potential there and what caveats would you put on that? Well, I think the infrastructure opportunities in Asia are enormous. Um, and every every statistic that you look at is is huge, and so I think that that is something that people are paying attention to. Pension funds have been opening offices in Asia, and I think that will continue. Uh, so I'm not concerned um, that they don't know about what the opportunities are. The question is, what can we do to get them more interested by partnering, by providing insurance, by shouldering some of the burden, um, allowing them to take equity stakes? And in some cases, it's not as easy. And so when you look at, for example, the presence of Canadian companies in China, There aren't as many companies that you would expect because in some cases the market is just not open. And uh, so one has to always pay attention to what not only what the opportunities are, but what barriers are there. And there still are barriers and there's still uh, some concern about uh, things like um, data, data insuring, et cetera, um, that is a deterrent to companies uh, becoming involved. But the thing is, when you look at the Asian market, the growth of the middle class, the fact that the populations are still young, particularly in Southeast Asia, that presents such a huge opportunity for, especially for the insurance companies. And these, these, and same with Canadian pension funds, these are huge global companies. And I think that there's just more opportunity to work, and in, including with American partners on that. So for our listeners who would be really interested in following along and staying tuned in to everything that, you know, we're talking about today and that you spend a lot of time thinking about, where besides this wonderful podcast and um, articles that you publish, what, what should people be following or reading or what's a good uh, way to stay up to date? Let's see, a good way to stay up to date. I have a hard time staying up to date. (laughs) 
Okay, you can edit that out. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's good and it's real. I mean, I, I find it challenging, right, to say there's so many things bubbling up in this very dynamic region that really are important and impactful to both U.S. and Canada. And as you're trying to wrap your head around all those issues, it's like, where's the best place to find this information? How do we tap into it? Like, are there specific writers who are talking about it that are, you know, more timely than others? I don't know. I mean, um, I would just say it's always interesting to follow what people are saying in the region as opposed to necessarily in Washington. Mm. So I am a big fan of uh, the Lowy Institute, for example, in Australia, um, uh, Yusuf Ishak Institute at, in Singapore. So there are other sources of information in terms of what is happening that people should look at. But that being said, there is a lot going on in Washington. There's so much attention being paid now to Asia in Washington. And I just wanted to say, though, that there is a, a huge focus on China, which is important. But I also think that we need to pay attention to a China plus one strategy, which is what companies are doing. So it's not China's is will always be number one in Asia. It is a global superpower, economic superpower, and sadly, even more a military superpower. Uh, but there's a lot more to Asia than China. And so Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, that's what I think we should be focusing on. Um, Deanna, the, one of the things that um, I remember Prime Minister Trudeau said when he when he came into office was that Canadians want to be known for what's in their head, not what's under their feet. But Canadians are big exporters of critical things for Asia, including agricultural products for, for hungry countries. Uh, you mentioned critical minerals, but also energy, which where there's great potential if you could get it the energy to the coast so you could put it on a boat. How, how do you see those resources, those products, uh, building ties between Canada and the region? You have it to sell if you can figure out how to get it to market. Will that be part of a reintroduction or maybe a, a reawakening of Asian interest in uh, and Indo-Pacific interest in Canada when they realize that you actually bring good things that they, they would like? Oh, yes. For example, the LNG project, I think, is huge. And I remember that was under discussion in the 80s in in Japan, and it fell it fell apart. But it's back. LNG will be continue to be very important. So um, yes, I think that in terms of large projects, and uh, I would just like to say that indigenous rights will be important to this. And I think it is, uh, it behooves countries both in the U.S., also in Asia, to take a look at what indigenous interests would be. And I think if you can get indigenous interests on board and make them a part of the project, I think that would go a long way to helping some of the getting things to market because so much of it is on treaty land. Uh, so um, that would be my piece of advice to anybody who's interested in a major project in Canada. Uh, 
especially in, on the energy side and also in critical mass. This is an obscure reference, but I, I rem- remember talking to New Zealand's ambassador here in Washington a few years ago, and it was Tim Grosser, who used to be their um, their trade minister. And uh, we were just beginning to talk about the renegotiation of NAFTA that got brought us to the USMCA. But uh, there was a discussion that was introduced by, by Canada into the negotiations of a discussion of Indigenous economic rights within the trade agreement, part of the inclusivity agenda that Canada brought to the discussions. And uh, what Ambassador Grosser said to me was, do you know, we actually had the first ever indigenous trade clause in an agreement between Taiwan and New Zealand for trade. And the reason was that the Maori people have uh, ethnic ties to people who grew up on the island of Formosa. And there were some religious... Um, uh, items that came from animals that are native to Formosa, and particularly oils and some other things that they wanted to be able to trade, but because the species are endangered, normal trade rules said, no, that's poaching, no, that's not allowed. And so they had to have a carve out that allowed them to trade in traditional products and to maintain their culture. But uh, when you talk about indigenous communities in trade, it's something more, isn't it? It's not just the selling of products from indigenous communities, it's also about the role that they may have economically in infrastructure in land rights and so forth, or even and even employment. Yes, absolutely. I think that that will be, if if we are going to make something of this, we will need uh, Indigenous um, communities on board, and there has to be something in it for them. I know we're running out of time, but I have one more question that I would love to sneak in here. Can we sort of circle back to NAFTA, USMCA? You know, it's up for review in a couple of years here, what what do you think are the big items that need to, you know, be talked about or thought about as we're approaching the review? Well, I think one of the things will be obviously to get it renewed. That's the number one priority. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think by the time it's up for renewal, there's going to be some um some evolution in terms of uh, electric vehicles, for example. Automotive has been huge in NAFTA for, and the whole question of content, that will all have to be a part of it. And also supply chain resilience. If we really want to do something about supply chain resilience and bringing more to back to North America, we really have to develop the partnership and to create the frameworks to make that work. Thank you. I just couldn't resist asking someone who was, you know, in it from the ground to give us your thoughts before we close out here. But, you know, it has been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time, your thoughts. It's It's been wonderful. And I now have places to go do some research, keep myself <laughs> abreast on all the topics, right? Thanks very much. I've always liked working with CABC. Well, and hopefully we'll keep you talking about these things at the Wilson Center as well. Deanna Horton, thank you so much for joining us today on Canusa Street. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 